Route 66. Today, as we continue our journey through the Bible from the book of Genesis through the book of Revelation, we're cruising through 66 books, one book each Sunday. This morning, we want to study the 14th book, Second Chronicles. So let's just dive right in, beginning with the structure. How does the book of Second Chronicles fit into the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament consists of three major sections of books, historical, poetical, and prophetical. Chronologically, only 11 of these books actually move the storyline of the Old Testament forward in time. And the rest of the Old Testament books, including five of the historical books and all of the poetical and prophetical books, fit in to this storyline of these 11 books. Second Chronicles fits in during the storyline of First and Second Kings. Now again, I realize this chart is difficult to see up here on the monitor, which is why there's a copy of it that you can pick up back in the lobby uh, by the Route 66 sign for study on your own. So what's the structure of the book of Second Chronicles itself? Well, as we discovered in the video at the beginning of today's lesson, First and Second Chronicles originally were one book in the Hebrew Bible entitled, as translated into English, The Words of the Days. Now, the equivalent title today would be something like The Events of the Times. Later, the Septuagint. The Greek translation of the Old Testament divided it into two books, giving it the very, very long name of things omitted concerning the kings of Judah. That's quite a mouthful. The name Chronicles actually comes to us from Jerome in his translation of the Latin Vulgate Bible, 385 to 405 AD. Now the author of the book of Second Chronicles is anonymous. Although the Jewish Talmud tells us it was written by the priest Ezra. The style of Chronicles is in fact very similar to that of the book of Ezra. In addition to the closing verses of Second Chronicles, they are being nearly identical to the beginning verses of Ezra, indicating that these two books may have in fact circulated in one volume at some point, similar to how Luke and Acts circulated in the New Testament. Chronicles comes at the very end of the traditional Hebrew Bible rather than, as in our English Bibles, after Samuel and Kings. That makes sense, being to understand that it was written after the Babylonian exile to the Jews who had resettled the city of Jerusalem and the country of Judah as a reminder of Israel's history and heritage. The priest Ezra was the spiritual leader of the people with Nehemiah as the political leader and the prophet Malachi as the moral leader. Now with that overall structure in mind then, let's move on to the story. Once again, we are indebted to the Bible Project for their excellent overview of the storyline of Chronicles in the video clip that we watched at the beginning of today's lesson. We watched the first part of this video, of course, a couple of weeks ago in our last lesson, and the second part about Second Chronicles today. As usual, I've reproduced this chart across the inside pages of your lesson notes for your own further study at home. The book of 2 Chronicles continues 1 Chronicles' spiritual commentary on the two tribes of the southern kingdom of Judah. It virtually ignores the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel. That's because the focus is on the royal Davidic line through which the Messiah 
would eventually come. Since the northern kingdom had rejected David's descendants as well as the temple in Jerusalem, their history is rather inconsequential to Ezra the priest. Second Chronicles, I think, naturally divides itself into two distinct sections. We could call the first section Solomon's reign. Solomon's reign. Chapters 1 through 9 cover the 40 years of Solomon's reign. This is Israel's golden age of peace and prosperity. The kingdom is still united, all 12 northern and southern tribes. Israel's boundaries extend to their greatest point. Solomon's wisdom, wealth, palace, and temple become legendary worldwide. His mighty spiritual, uh, political, and architectural feats raise Israel literally to the zenith of their being a nation. Now, in keeping with Ezra's priestly view of things, six of these first nine chapters are concerned with the construction, the dedication, and the operation of the temple. Which brings us to the other part of the book I would call Judah's Ruin. Judah's Ruin. Chapters 10 through 36 cover the 393 years of Judah's ruin. Unfortunately, Israel's glory under Solomon is rather short-lived. Soon after Solomon's death, Israel as a nation is divided. Both kingdoms begin a downward spiral that can only be delayed by occasional spiritual reforms. And these reformation efforts uh, on the part of Judah's kings are valiant, but they seldom last more than one generation. Nevertheless, 70% of chapters 10 through 36 deal with the eight good kings, leaving only 30% to talk about the 12 evil kings. And each king is measured with respect to his relationship to God, especially as it compares to David's relationship to God as a man after God's own heart. When the king serves Yahweh, then Judah is blessed with political and economic prosperity. When the king serves other gods, Judah is cursed with political and economic adversity. Now the very last chapter records the fall of Judah. Second Chronicles 36, 15-20 puts it this way, The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, And the treasures of the king and his officials, they set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped the sword, and they became servants to him. In spite of that, the book actually ends with a rather note of hope. For the future, 70 years later, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up. Dot, dot, 
not. <laughs> and so we're set up for the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and the stories of the exiles returning from captivity to resettle Judah, to rebuild the temple, and to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. Solomon's reign, Judah's ruin. That's the story of Second Chronicles. Which brings us to the Savior. Each Sunday as we focus on one of the 66 books of the Bible, one of our priorities is to point out where and how Jesus is to be found in the narrative of that book. Now please remember, there's one grand central theme, a single scarlet thread, if you will, that runs throughout Scripture, and that is salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Christ. And so here in Second Chronicles, we want to stop, look, and listen for the Savior. Where and how does Jesus Christ appear in the narrative of Second Chronicles? Well, Second Chronicles tells the story of the throne of David being destroyed. And yet the line of David remains intact. Murders, treachery, battles, and captivity all threaten the messianic line, but it remains clear and unbroken, beginning all the way at the beginning with Adam through Zerubbabel at the end of the exile. And Ezra is sure to document that very carefully in Second Chronicles. The fulfillment in Christ can be seen in the genealogies of Matthew 1 and Luke 3. Now perhaps the key word from Second Chronicles is temple temple. The book begins with the construction, dedication, and operation of the temple under Solomon's leadership. And as we just read in 2 Chronicles 36, the book ends with the destruction of the temple. Nebuchadnezzar carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, the treasures of the Lord's temple. They set fire to God's temple. And yet at the very end of the book, It ends with Cyrus, the king of Persia's proclamation, the Lord, the God of heaven, has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. And so, so much of the book of 2 Chronicles revolves around the temple of God. And that's no accident, by the way. Why? Because the temple prefigures Jesus Christ, the Savior. In Matthew 12, verse 6, Jesus says of Himself, I tell you there is one here who is even greater than the temple. In John 2, verse 19, Jesus likens His body to the temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And all of this is culminated, of course, in John's vision of the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Don't miss that. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You see, the temple never was about buildings. As beautiful and glorious as they may have been, it was never about the place It was always about the person. It was all about the Lamb, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. It was all about, in Jesus' own words, the one here who is even greater than the temple. When Stephen was defending himself before the Sanhedrin, he made this appeal in Acts chapter 7, verses 46 through 49. David asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High, notice this, does not live 
in houses made by human hands. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord. You see, no house, no temple could ever truly contain God. And yes, symbolically, God chose to dwell among His people Israel in the Ark of the Covenant, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple, in that little cubicle called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. But that box, the Ark, and those buildings, the tabernacle and temples, were never meant to be seen as God's actual dwelling place. Again, it was never about the place. It was always about the person. All of which leads me to ask this critical question. So where is God's temple today? Where does God dwell today? Read 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16 out loud with me. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? A few chapters later, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19, Paul stated it this way, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Wow! God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, chooses to live in us. We are His temple. When we by faith choose Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of our lives, He chooses to dwell in us. His very presence comes into our bodies. Our hearts become the holy of holies, just like God chose to dwell among His people Israel in the temple in Second Chronicles. That's amazing when you stop to think about that. Temple. I wish time would allow me to say more, but here we see the Savior Jesus in the book of Second Chronicles. Which brings us to our final main point, and that's the sense. As we wrap up every lesson, I want to offer the sense of each of these books of the Bible. In other words, what practical take-home lessons can we apply to our lives from the book? In today's case, what instructions and applications can we glean from the book of Second Chronicles? Well, of the 40 kings who ruled the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah, only eight of them were considered righteous in God's sight. The northern kingdom of Israel was zero for 20. (laughs) Which is why very little is recorded about the northern kingdom in 2 Chronicles. The southern kingdom of Judah was eight for 20. However, of these eight good kings... It should be noted that most of them started well, but finished poorly. I'd like to focus in on three of them today. Asa, Joash, and Isaiah. How could these three men, each of whom genuinely walked with God, each of whom were anointed by God to lead His people, how could they start so well and yet end so poorly? First, let's take a look at each of their stories, and then second, we'll draw some practical take-home lessons to apply to our own lives from their examples. Let's begin with Asa. Earlier, I asked you to open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles 14. So follow along now as I read just a few verses. We pick it up with verse 1. And Abijah rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. Asa, his son, succeeded him as king, and in his days the country was at peace for ten years. 
Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars and the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and to obey His laws and commands. He removed the high places and incense altars in every town in Judah, and the kingdom was at peace under Him. He built up the fortified cities of Judah since the land was at peace. No one was at war with Him during those years, for the Lord gave Him rest. Then in the verses that follow, we learn about Asa's army. Verse 9 tells us that Zerah the Cushite, the Ethiopian, marched against Asa with an army of thousands upon thousands, which by the way in Hebrew is a way of saying a million soldiers. That's a pretty good size army. Hopelessly outnumbered, verse 11 tells us, Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there's no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this vast army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let mere mortals prevail against you. And the rest of chapter 14 records the way that God miraculously intervened, how the Cushites were crushed before the Lord and His forces. I mean, you talk about starting out well. Asa did. Second Chronicles 15 is a, is a record of all the reforms that Asa brought about. Verse 8, he removed the detestable idols from the whole land. He repaired the temple of the Lord. Verse 12, they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, with all their heart and soul. Verse 15, they sought God eagerly. And he was found by them. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. Verse 17, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord. 2 Chronicles 16, however, is a completely different story. Follow along in your Bible as we highlight a few verses. Pick it up with verse 1. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Baasha, the king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. Asa then took the silver and gold out of the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace and sent it to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. Let there be a treaty between me and you, he said, as there was between my father and your father. See, I'm sending you silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so he will withdraw from me. Then we get down to verses 7 through 10. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Cushites and Libyans a mighty army? Yeah, with great numbers, a million, remember? Of chariots and horsemen, yet when you relied on the Lord, He delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on you will be at war. Asa was angry with the seer because of this. He was so enraged that he put him in prison. At the same time, Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. And verses 12 and 13 tell us of Asa's demise. Look at them. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. Then in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested 
with his ancestors. He started so well, yet he finished so poorly. That brings us to Joash. Second Chronicles 23 tells us the story of Jehoiada the high priest and <coughs> how he conspired against uh, Queen Athaliah who had tried to usurp the throne of David by killing off all of his descendants. Joash was just a one-year-old baby. He was hidden for six years before Jehoiada brought him out of hiding. Verse 11 tells us, Jehoiada and his sons brought out the king's son and put a crown on him and proclaimed him king. They anointed him and shouted, Long live the king! And so at the young age of only seven, Joash began his 40-year reign. 2 Chronicles 24.2 tells us Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the years of Jehoiada the priest. In the verses that follow, we read of Joash's repairs to the temple in Jerusalem. He challenged the people of Judah to give generously, and they did. In fact, let's pick up the storyline at verse 13. 2 Chronicles 24, verse 13. The men in charge of the work were diligent, and the repairs progressed under them. They rebuilt the temple of God according to its original design and reinforced it. When they had finished, they brought the rest of the money to the king in Jehoiada, and with it were made articles for the Lord's temple, articles for the service and for the burnt offerings, also dishes and other objects of gold and silver. As long as Jehoiada lived, burnt offerings were presented continually in the temple of the Lord. But then verse 15 tells us that Jehoiada the priest died. And without Jehoiada as his mentor... The balance of Joash's life was quite a different story. Follow along in your Bible as we pick it up with verse 17. After the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and paid homage to the king, and he listened to them. They abandoned the temple of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and worshipped the Asherah poles and idols. Because of their guilt, God's anger came on Judah and Jerusalem. Although the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to Him, and though they testified against them, they would not listen. And then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, the priest. He stood before the people and said, This is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper because you have forsaken the Lord. He has forsaken you. But they plotted against him, and by order of the king, they stoned him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. King Joash did not remember the kindness of Zechariah's father Jehoiada had shown him, but killed his son, who said as he lay dying, May the Lord see this and call this to your account. And God did, of course. The army of Aram marched against Joash and look at the sad end to his life. Pick it up with verse 24. Although the Aramean army had come with only a few men, the Lord delivered into their hands a much larger army. Because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors, judgment was executed on Joash. When the Arameans withdrew, they left Joash severely wounded. His officials conspired against him for murdering the son of Jehoiada the priest, and they killed him in his bed. And so he died and was buried in the city of David. But notice the last line. He was buried without honor, not in the tombs, of the kings. Again, Joash started so well, but he ended so poorly. Which brings us then to Isaiah. 
I hope you're enjoying all this. <laughs> we go through these people's lives. Second Chronicles 26 gives us Isaiah's life story. Follow along in your Bible as we pick it up with verse 1. 2 Chronicles 26, verse 1. All the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father Amaziah. Down to verse 3. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. Down to verse 4. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. And God did give Uzziah great success. In verses 6 through 15, we read how God blessed Uzziah with fame and a fearful reputation in the eyes of Judah's enemies, giving him uh, the very decisive victories in battles and granting him the means and the skill for multiple building and agricultural projects and providing him with an elite army that was equipped with state-of-the-art war machines. But, big but. Let's pick up the text in verse 16. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him in. They confronted King Uzziah and said, It is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests of the descendants of Aaron who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and you will not be honored by the Lord God. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand ready to burn incense, became angry. While he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous, and banned from the temple of the Lord. Again, he started so well and he ended so poorly. So what lessons can we learn from the lives of these good kings who started so well and finished so poorly? Although there may be many, I have selected just three of them for take-home applications because if we want to finish well, number one, I must continually put God first. I must continually put God first. Asa started so well. 2 Chronicles 14.4 tells us he commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and obey His laws and commands. And again, when he was hopelessly outnumbered in battle, 2 Chronicles 14 verse 11 says, Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there's no one like you to help the powerless. We rely on you. And yet in his later years, Hanani the prophet confronted him for relying on others, for trying to fix things all by himself. In Hanani's own words, you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God. And Hanani concludes with these words in verse 9. In fact, let's read these out loud together. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. You have done a foolish thing. 
I love the way the message paraphrases this. It says, God is always on the alert, constantly on the lookout for people who are totally committed to Him. You were foolish to go for human help when you could have had God's help. Now, you're in trouble. Uzziah, 2 Chronicles 26, verse 5 tells us, as long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. The problem is, like Asa, Uzziah stopped putting God first. He took matters into his own hands. He became me first. And 2 Chronicles 26.16 says his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And as we already read, he did not finish well. God struck him with leprosy. He spent the rest of his life as an outcast banned from the temple of the Lord. The point is, in order to finish well, I must continually put God first. The very first of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 23, instructs us, you shall have no other gods before Me. Jesus Himself told us to give Him first place in your life. Nahum 1 verse 2 tells us, the Lord God tolerates no rivals. Either He is Lord of all or He is not Lord at all. So the question is, do I continually put God first? Is God number one in my life today? Before anyone else, before anything else, is God first? And it's not about what, whether He was first at some point in time in your past. It's whether He's first in your life today. And will He be first in your life tomorrow? Enough said. First, in order to finish well, I must continually put God first. In order to finish well, number two, I must intentionally seek godly counsel. I must intentionally seek godly counsel. According to 2 Chronicles 15, Asa listened to the godly counsel of the prophet Azariah. According to 2 Chronicles 24, Joash relied upon the advice of Jehoiada the priest. In fact, verse 2 tells us, Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the years of Jehoiada the priest. And according to 2 Chronicles 26 verse 5, Uzziah sought God during the days of Zechariah who instructed him in the fear of the Lord. And as long as Asa and Joash and Uzziah intentionally sought out godly counsel, they experienced success. But the day came in all three of their lives as kings that they ceased to be accountable. And thus all three finished poorly. The point is, in order to finish well, I must seek godly counsel. Proverbs 12, verse 15 reminds us, the way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Proverbs 15, verse 22 puts it this way, get all the advice you can and you will succeed. Without it, you will fail. One more proverb. Proverbs 27, verse 9. Let's read this one out loud together. The pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. Which leads me to the question, do I intentionally seek godly counsel? Do do I have people in my life that I turn to? Friends, family members, pastors and leaders in the church. Godly people who have the same desire that I have to follow God wholeheartedly. Are there some people around me that I turn to constantly to to ask for advice and seek their counsel? Or am I just kind of doing my own thing? 
I am sure right now that if Frank Sinatra could come back, he would say, don't do it my way. Do it God's way. And in order to do it God's way, you're going to have to have some people speaking into your life. You're going to have to have some godly people around you who hold you accountable. You need to seek godly counsel. So second, in order to finish well, I must intentionally seek godly counsel. And then, in order to finish well, number three, I must willingly receive honest correction. I must willingly receive honest correction. All three of these kings failed when they when it came to how they responded to frank and honest correction. When the prophet Hanani rebuked Asa, you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God. You have done a foolish thing. Second Chronicles 16 and verse 10 tells us Asa was angry with the seer because of this. He was so enraged that he put him in prison. When the high priest Zechariah confronted Joash, why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper. Second Chronicles 24.21 says, by order of the king they stoned him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. When the high priest Azariah corrected Isaiah, it's not right for you, Isaiah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priest. 2 Chronicles 26 verse 19 explains, Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand ready to burn incense, became angry. He was raging at the priest. The point is, in order to finish well, I must willingly receive honest correction. Proverbs 12, verse 1, warns us, whoever hates correction is stupid. Let's read Proverbs 29, verse 1, out loud together. Whoever remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. So the question is, do I willingly receive honest correction? Do I have people in my life that I have given permission to to speak plainly? to speak bluntly, to get in my face and hold me accountable? Have I given a group of people in my life the, 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 the liberty, the freedom to be able to tell me what I don't want to hear? You know what I'm saying? If all you have is a bunch of yes people around you, if all you have is people who confirm everything you say and everything you do because it makes you feel good, you are in trouble. You need some people who are going to challenge you. You need some people who are going to lift up a higher standard. You need some people who are not afraid to get in your face and tell you the truth and give you the advice you need to hear. And if you're afraid to hear that advice, you are really in trouble. So third, in order to finish well, I must willingly receive honest correction. Three lessons then from Second Chronicles, from the examples of Asa, Joash, and Uzziah, who started out well but ended rather poorly. In order to finish well, number one, I must continually put God first. Number two, I must intentionally seek godly counsel. And number three, I must willingly receive honest correction. After all, don't we all want to finish well? I mean, here's the good news, we can. <laughs> Regardless of how we started, whether it was with success or it was with failure, we can choose how we finish 
by applying these three principles to our daily lives. And then we can join the Apostle Paul in saying, I've stayed on course and finished the race, and through it all I have kept believing. I look forward to what's in store for me, a victory crown of righteousness that the Lord will award to me. And don't we all want to hear Jesus' own words, you have done well and proven yourself to be my loyal and trustworthy servant. That's the sense. The second Chronicles. Route 66. As we're cruising through the 66 books of the Bible, today we focused on this book of Second Chronicles, the structure of the story, the Savior, and the sense. We'll continue our journey next Sunday with the book of Ezra. There are ten chapters in Ezra, a rather short book, so if you read just over a chapter a day, you'll read through the entire book before we study it together next Sunday. It is a great book of spiritual reform and renewal. I encourage you to give it the time this week. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. It is rich with stories and examples, both good and bad, that teach us. And this morning we have talked about how do we finish well. It matters not so much now what has happened in the past, for You are a God of grace who forgives and You are more concerned with today. You are more concerned with our future and how we finish the race. So Lord, help us to take this advice to heart that we might finish well for You. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.